This is the current federal tax developments for the week of July the 3rd, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers lecturing today from a rather warm Phoenix, Arizona here on the 3rd of July. We're going to be looking at some developments that took place over the past week in the area of federal taxes. And to be precise, we're going to start with the Supreme Court's decision to accept a case related to the 965 transition tax. And the key question is, what impact does this have on our clients? More specifically, those who may have been impacted by the 965 transition taxes added by the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and elected to pay the tax in installments. What do we need to do to preserve their rights, assuming that the Supreme Court possibly could end up invalidating the tax entirely. And if they did so, how do we assure our clients can get back at least some of what they've already paid in on that 965 transition tax? Next, we'll talk about the fact the IRS released uh, here in the last month, various forms related to the partnership income tax return. And we'll talk about the 1065, the K-1 and K2, K3, we're going to look at the K3 specifically, but really the K2 has the same thing. So we'll talk about that as well. And finally, we're going to consider a firefighter's uh, losing tax court case where she attempted to have excluded from her income a lawsuit settlement. And this will give us a good time to go over the situations in which such settlements may be excludable from income and why in this case that the firefighter settlement did not qualify for such an exclusion. So we have lots of neat things here and we just kind of have to get ready and figure out where we're going to be going with this and how we move forward on this particular issue. So let's go ahead and let's take a look at the Supreme Court decision to hear a case on validity of the 965 transition tax. The case in question is a case of Moore versus the United States this is case 22-800, and cert was granted on June the 26th by the Supreme Court. This case involves the 965 transition tax that was enacted as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act back in 2017. And if you remember this tax, it imposed a tax on the undistributed income on shareholders uh, who were shareholders of certain foreign corporations. It was basically corporations that previously the, uh, you know, had basically were subject to the special controlled foreign corporation rules, similar structures. And what it was going to do was going to tax income that under the rules in place at the time was not subject to income tax until the taxpayer in question, the shareholder in question, received a payout of it. So when you brought the earnings back on shore and part of that structure was that, uh, you know, we had this structure, we were going to pay this tax. And as I mentioned, there is a deferral option. We'll talk about it here in a second. But in this case, the taxpayers in Moore argued that this violated the 16th Amendment. They claim that under the 16th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which authorized an income tax, uh, basically without having to apportion among the states, that only applies to income. And they're saying under the 16th Amendment, income only counts income that is realized. And since this income is not yet realized, their view is it's not realized until it's brought back on shore that there, you know, the 965 transition tax by taxing it while it remains offshore and in their view unrealized, 
that that income, you know, basically this tax violated the Constitution. Now, this is an interesting case because it eventually, it first came up in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, is what the Moore case did, or I should say actually came up in uh, trial court. And the trial court granted summary judgment for the government, saying that no, that this is perfectly allowed under the 16th Amendment, not a problem. Saying that no, no, we, we, we think you have realization, you know, we think that all of this is fine. And we don't see there's any problem with this. This sort of thing has been done for ages under the tax law. Courts have not objected to this for many, many years. Okay. Well, the taxpayers in Moore decided to appeal this to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, where they again lost. But there, there was an interesting addition. The Ninth Circuit's opinion contained a statement that didn't matter whether the income had or had not been realized because realization was not a requirement for the income to be subject to tax. This is probably what attracted attention to this case and probably got the Supreme Court's attention. Now, the Moore case, you need to understand a little bit about the case to understand what it is. And it's a type of case we see done every so often. Uh, you know, we had that about a year ago when there was an attempt to try to get the IRS to commit on the tax status of staking income and the attempt to force a trial on a case in Tennessee that eventually the district court there ruled was mute, was basically a moot point because the IRS decided to settle and the taxpayers still wanted the case to go to court. Well, there are from time to times that we, you know, in essence, we want those to go. And if you looked at the question in that case, you looked at the amount of dollars in question and the refund in question, you quickly realize that this case was not really about that single refund. Rather, they wanted a case on the books that would put down some rules that then would allow them to file a whole bunch more refund claims and the like. That would be the point, assuming you win the case. This one is a little different, but same concept of the, the dollars involved don't make sense to pay for representation to get the case all the way, even to the Ninth Circuit. I mean, it was questionably worthwhile to get it to the district court. And probably if you were just looking at this, these numbers, you would have advised against trying it because you had to realize that if you wanted the district court, the IRS was certainly going to force the appeal up to the Circuit Court of Appeals. And since the total tax that the Moors were talking about was 15000 well, let's just put it simply, you're going to blow 15000 of legal fees easily before you ever get to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals or any Circuit Court of Appeals. In essence, the representation fees, you know, going through the first case, taking it all the way through the summary judgment phase, then going to the Ninth Circuit, presenting your cases there, you're going to be way over 15000 in legal fees. And there's certainly no guarantee, even if you win, that then probably very little chance, if you even if you win, that the courts are going to award legal fees to you, saying the government's position was substantially non-justified, because to be honest, obviously, the courts have accepted various things like this for years. Nobody has ever, you know, courts never suggested it didn't count. So even if you're right, you're probably not getting legal fees. So the bottom line is, why are you doing it? Well, the reason is, the reason, and to be quite honest, I think at this point, you can even say the reason is not really the 965 transition tax. 
at least the speculation is it's not. Now, obviously, it's a nice benefit if we don't have to pay it. But if you really were objecting to the 965 transition tax and you wanted to get that done, you're paying for this case to go forward that otherwise doesn't make sense. Well, it would have been really nice to have done this back in 2017 when the first, you know, as soon as you paid the tax to go ahead and file the claim for refund and force the matter through the IRS and get it into the courts quickly because you needed it back then due to, as we'll discuss in a second, statute issues. So this kind of begs the question. Obviously, the Moors had this open. Obviously, this was available. But the question quickly becomes, why now? Well, it appears that the primary reason for this is this case is a vehicle, at least if they succeed on the grounds that they're claiming, that would allow them to put a stake in the ground to attempt to stop a wealth tax at the federal level. Uh, now, so far, the only wealth taxes that have come close to passing, realistically, or even in the ballpark of close to passing, have been more at the state level. Uh, and obviously, the 16th Amendment is not going to help you much at the state level in doing that sort of issue. It would be more of a state-driven thing. But there had been some proposals by the administration or by, you know, uh, chair of the Senate Finance Committee, Ron Wyden, to impose a wealth tax with people with a net worth above certain levels. And the idea is that this would shut that down. If there has to be a realization event, then you couldn't do what the wealth taxes would want to do, which is have a mark-to-market uh, structure at the end of every year. And if the value of the person's assets had grown, you would have them pay tax on that appreciation. Now we're going to kind of back that off and rather say, nope, you can't do that because that's not a realization event. Uh, if you did that, you'd have to apportion, which kind of kills the whole purpose. And so because of that, you're going to have to instead like go through a full-blown constitutional amendment. So the theory being it would shut that down. So it's kind of a preemptive strike is what we really think the motivation is. Certainly the timing of this makes little sense if you just wanted to get rid of the 965 tax. They really should have, you know, they waited way too long to get this in court because most people affected by it were simply, you know, not going to be, would not be able to get back everything they'd paid in. Now, the Supreme Court received a request to hear on appeal and they granted cert on June 26. And they did specifically in the documents you're going to find on the Supreme Court's website, they focus on that statement of no realization is needed. And that's probably a clue to a certain extent of why the Supreme Court took this. And it may give a clue about what the resolution is likely to be. So we're going to get there to that point. But at this point, we have to ask ourselves, what does this mean for our clients? We'll talk about this here in a second. But our clients who were hit by the 965 transition tax probably still have a number of payments left to be made on that tax. And they made payments in the past. If, in fact, this tax is invalid, then first thing is we should get some of that money back, and we'll talk about how much we could claim. But secondly, what about those payments that are due, the next one coming up on April of next, you know, April 15th next year for individuals, uh, March 15th if you're a corporation. So what about those future payments? You know, do we, you know, do, can we stop making them? And we'll talk about where we're at on that. So the transition tax was imposed, and it would be the year 2017 or 2018 tax years. It goes back to the tax courts in 
Tax Cuts and Jobs Act depends on the fiscal year of the shareholder and various rules. The shareholder could be a corporation itself or it could be an individual. So it applied on both counts. Now, under the rules they passed there for that offshore income that hadn't been subject to tax that we're going to impose a tax on right now, the IRS has six years to assess tax on the amount you calculated was subject to that tax under 965K. Please note that that six-year statute has not yet expired. So the IRS still has the right to go back and look at your 2017 return. And if you miscalculated the 965 transition tax and calculated it so that you underpaid the tax, the IRS could still assess additional tax against it. And there are mechanisms in the law that would allow them to adjust your future installments to get paid those amounts. But when we look at this, the other catch was the taxpayers could elect. We compute this amount of tax. And let's say we computed there was 200,000 due. Well, we were allowed to elect to pay that over eight installments. Now, those installments did not have interest running on them. And the other interesting part about those installments were they were very, very much back-end weighted. They're becoming much bigger here at the back end of the payments. So we're allowed to defer them for eight years. Now, the interesting problem is if we're going to go for protective refunds, we have some issues. But one important thing to note here is because of this structure, we're going to know that the statute of limitations are going to be tied both to the tax return that was filed for the tax in question. And there's a second statute based on when the tax was paid. And we can claim based on the later of those two. Now, the question becomes, under this rule, and like with the installments, it said that we were going to pay that installment, every subsequent installment after the first one, would be paid by the due date without extension for the uh, taxpayer's tax return for, the for each following year. So the question became, well, on the installment payments, are those payments really just a payment of the 17 tax, the tax that was assessed on the 17 return, or do they somehow attach to the later returns? And if you're thinking about that, and if you understand statutes right now, you understand why you're thinking about that, because it would open up a lot more if it was attached to every subsequent 1040. Uh, it would open up for a lot of taxpayers potential of two additional payments uh, being available at this point in time compared to what appears to be available at this point in time. Well, the, I, there's some bad news for you. First thing is the way I would read the law, I would say the tax clearly was only computed and calculated and attached to the 2017 return. I would point out to you that when the IRS sends those billing notices out every spring to your clients, they do also say it's a 2017 tax payment. That's how it's going to be reflected in the system. And we have a large business and industry memorandum that went out to examiners who are going to be carrying out examinations of the 965 transition tax. And that was updated just last year. That is LBNI memo 04-0922-0019. That in fact, the tax computation is strictly tied to the 2017 return. So that's it. It's not tied to the uh, individual installments. The installments are not part of that. So for purposes of assessment, the six-year statute is tied to 17, not tied to the later years. So it's not tied. So it's not as if they can go back and recover everything 
if they were to examine in the eighth year of payment, which would be outside the normal statute. So they need to have the statute there. The memos also discuss the fact that the six-year statute only applies to the 965 transition tax for that year. So at the time, and this and the first of these memos got issued before we were going to see the expiration of statute on 2017 returns under the standard three-year statute, uh, they said, well, you know, you, you've got to consider separately if there are issues other than the 965 transition tax. And, you know, if you're an agent, you know, you need to make sure you cover that first statute, not for 965 adjustments, but for anything else on the return. So it's an interesting discussion, but the key there is, the IRS position is, these are related to the 17 return. I think that position's correct, or the 18 return, if that was here, you filed it on. I think the position's correct, which is bad news for us, because we're obviously more than three years past the due date, uh, including extensions for either the 2017 return or the 2018 return. So whichever one of those, assuming we filed on time, uh, you know, we're well past any statute uh, for those particular items. So that's our issue. Now, this case will likely be heard in the next Supreme Court term. That's usually how they do these things. A decision, my guess is, will most likely come after April 15th of 2024. Maybe the court will recognize it'd be nice to know these before the next payment date. You know, and maybe they'll get a decision out, but that's awfully early in the term to get a decision out. And, you know, it's just not one of those things the court's likely to do. They're more likely to start getting decisions out like they did this year. You know, you're going to see a lot more of them come accelerate toward the end of the term. Because they'll hear the case, it'll be, you know, oral arguments will be held. That will come earlier in the term. But then they'll just, you know, make their decisions, figure out how the votes are going, assign a justice to write the opinion. Uh, other, they'll review the opinion being written. You know, they'll see how many people sign off on it. If anybody wants to write concurrences that get the same result, but come at it a different way. And also, if anybody, you know, wants to, it's going to be writing dissenting opinions. That's all going to take enough time that probably we're going to be sitting after April 15th of next year, which means we're probably going to have another payment due before we know the answer to the question of whether the payment is required. And if you remember, under the 965 transition tax, if you miss a payment and you don't have reasonable cause for that miss and a penalty is assigned for late payment, well, then the entire rest of the payments do immediately. So it's a rather high stakes game if you decide you're just not going to pay it on the basis that the Supreme Court's going to overturn it with this case. You have way more confidence than I would ever have in any Supreme Court case, even if I thought the case was absolutely rock solid that this has to be killed. And I'm not sure I'm at that point. In fact, I, I kind of believe that we're more likely to get this not being done. But, you know, we're more likely to get them to simply strike down the realization rule, probably by arguing that, you know, the gain was realized. And so, yes, realization is required. You're wrong, Ninth Circuit. But in this case, there was realization at the corporate level, and that's enough to impose the tax. Now, what's our statute of limitations, though, on getting refunds now? That's a concern for us. Under IRC Section 6511, the refund, the latest to get a refund, you must file your claim by the later of three years after your tax return was filed. Well, obviously, we're past that date. If it's 17 or 18 returns, filed timely, we're way past that date. Or two years after the payment was made. 
So unless we've taken actions, we're not within the three-year statute, but because we are paying these installment payments every year, we should be within the two-year statute, at least for the payments made on April in April of 2022 and April of 2023. Now, when we get to the early next year, we get in tax season next year, at some point, not clear if it really would be the April 15th extension, uh, do, you know, extended, or I should say the April 15th date, going back to whatever it was in the year in question, I guess in 22, we're gonna, when we're losing it, you know, the one that would fall off the edge, or if it's actual date paid, I think it may be the date paid here, because I don't think the fact that you could pay it as late as April 15th is going to allow you to treat it as paid on April 15th if the taxpayer sent the payment in sometime in March when they got the little coupon. As you know, I've got clients that just don't like unpaid bills, and so they just turn around and paid it immediately, especially when interest rates were super low. Why'd they care? Which I understand the point. And you also know if it doesn't get there on time, you know, if, it, if they treat it as not filed or something happens where it doesn't, you know, you get sick suddenly, etc., then you're at risk going to pay the whole thing. So they usually paid a little bit earlier. But bottom line, we should have two years in play. Now, like we said, the original return, like I said, is closed for refunds. That's there. The two payments are in place. But next year, we're going to lose the April 15, 2022 statute. And so it's likely, while today, clearly, we could get the last two payments. That's true today. That's not changing. There is nothing we can do at this point, it would appear, that would get us any more than that. But by sometime next spring, we should trip over the fact that we're going to lose that payment made in April of 2022 and not be able to have a claim for refund. And we have another problem. When we get to, as I mentioned, if we start getting past April of next year, well, we have another payment due. And so either you really bet everything on it and don't pay it on the theory that the Supreme Court's going to invalidate the law, which is a really high stakes gamble, but you know, okay. Um, I strongly advise against it, but whatever you want to do, or we need to have some way to add that to whatever method we're going to try to use to keep the statute open. And it could really be a few payments because there is a possibility that the Supreme Court rules realization is required. They develop a definition of realization and then they send it back, which probably is a smart move because you better define realization. If it's required, it'd be nice to have it defined. So they make over the definition and then send it back to the trial court you know, in essence, for them to hold a hearing on the facts or to get the parties to stip to produce the facts, stipulated, non-stipulated whatsoever, and apply those facts to the law and make a determination where there was a realization in this situation. And then, you know, either say, yep, okay, good, it's a good tax because there is a realization required under this under this law, or number two, it's not a good law because there is no realization event. And Whatever the decision would be at the trial court when it was appealed, you know, the, the losing party is going to automatically appeal the case. It'll go to the Ninth Circuit. Whatever they decide is irrelevant. The losing party is going to try to get the Supreme Court to hear the case again. And my guess is the Supreme Court would likely pick up the case since they picked up this one. And so it may be a long time down the line before we actually get our final result. So we may very well be through all eight payments before we're going to know for sure if the balance was due. So 
that's one of our issues. One of the ways that we can get around this is by using a concept called protective refunds. Now, a protective refund is really in many ways something that we have available to us by effectively uh, the IRS just allowing it to happen. And the concept here is a protective refund is a refund filed that is basically everything is agreed, or, you know, there is some key contingency that remains to be determined and it won't be determined before the statute is likely to expire on the claim for refund. And, but we want the IRS to hold, and we ask them to just hold this claim, don't take any action on it until that contingency is resolved. If that contingency is resolved against the taxpayer, then basically the IRS can just disallow the claim at that point. If the, IRS is re, if the claim is resolved in favor of the taxpayer, then the IRS will go through and see if there's anything else to object to. You know, whether there's anything else has to be looked at based on how the Supreme Court might rule and then process the claim. But it keeps the statute open because the statute, once you file the administrative request, the administrative claim for refund, the statute is, is held open until the IRS makes a decision one way or the other. Now, while after six months, you have a right, if the IRS has not made a decision after six months, to haul the IRS into court so they can't just sit on a case forever, uh, you don't really want to in this case, right? Because you got to then try the whole thing and you're going to be developing your own more case, which is kind of dumb because we have one already there that should decide this thing. And conversely, the IRS doesn't have to hold these things and, you know, hold them in abeyance. They, they could just process and deny uh, which if you force the point right now, they would. If you didn't ask it for protective, they would deny. Well, that would then give you two years to file a claim for refund based on what you've done. So you would extend the statute somewhat. It'd be two years from the date of the IRS denial. But you'd still then have to file a case in court. It would force the IRS to court to go over this thing and litigate it one more time, which we strongly suspect that before this case would be fully taken care of, we'd have a decision from the Moore case so it's like it's a waste of everybody's resources to actually process the claim at this point. So the IRS says, if you meet the requirements and you do it the way they, they talk about it, then we're able to get this protective claim. The processing methods for a protective claim are found in the Internal Revenue Manual. And that's the things you're going to want to take a look at to understand how to put this together. Now, generally, the manual... Uh, in section 4.10.11.2.1.3, parenthesis 4, I love these citations in the IRM, uh, on, it was updated on September 4th of 2020. If you look at the slide, that should be 2020. That describes the reasons and the justifications and why basically it just makes sense to allow protective refund to be treated that way and kind of put it off to the side, hold it, until such time as this case is covered, and then the service can move forward with the claim, right? And one contingency the IRS recognizes that would be justify a protective claim going down this path is matters pending before a court. And this is found in Internal Revenue Manual section 21.5.3.4.7.3, parenthesis 1, and that's there as of October 1st, 2018. Now, by the way, I should point out, the IRS actually has the Internal Revenue Manual online on their website. And also, if you use the taxnotes.com research, the free site, they also will let you get into the IRM's same basis. 
Tax Notes one is probably a little bit easier to use because you can actually give that long site and it'll bring that up for you automatically as opposed to on the IRS site having to go through the table of contents, but either one works fine. Wouldn't get terribly worried about using either. Uh, finally, the IRS describes the details that must be included in such a claim in the Internal Revenue Manual Code section, the same one we talked about before, 4.10.11.2.1.3.4, or .3, parenthesis 4, again on, and that again is a September 4th, 2020. Uh, the uh, contingency before the court counting is actually a 2018 revision, 10-1-2018, to the IRM, Internal Revenue Manual. Now, the mechanics of filing, as told us about in the IRM, you must use the proper form to file. Well, 843 is the general form for a claim for refund. If another form is required by its instructions, you're required to use it. Now, income taxes generally for an individual have to be claims for changes in those computations have to be on a form 1040X. If it's a corporate, it'd be an 1120X. And because the actual tax computation and therefore what we want to reset to zero was on the 2017 1040, it would appear the protective claim is going to go in on a 1040X to revise the numbers on the 2017 return. Now, we're going to have to make clear that the actual refund we're asking for, you know, we're not going to ask for the tax back because first thing is it wasn't paid with that return, right? So we're going to only ask back for what's been paid and we have to also say they're only going to look for the refunds for the amounts that were paid in the two years prior to the date the claim was paid, right? And we probably should mention that as additional later payments are made and as they become at risk for losing the statute, then we probably, you know, the IRS should expect that this claim will be revised uh, to add those to it. That will simply file a new claim or revise the claim, one of the two ways of doing it at that point. Okay. Now, what has to be in your claim? The claim absolutely must have, because the courts do recognize informal claims. I don't suggest you go there, but if you do have a claim that fails uh, to meet some standard for some reason, you can still probably get it through as an informal claim if and only if you go ahead and you get it recognized uh, based on the fact that it has all of these things at least. Must have the taxpayer's name. So we need the taxpayer's name to be involved. Uh, you know, so, you know, and what, what we'll have is the taxpayer's name is there. So we have that on, on the notice. We have the name. We also have to have the taxpayer's address, the tax identification number for the taxpayer, and the taxpayer's signature. Those are all required on the claim for refund. Right? Also, the claim must identify the contingency. In this case, specifically point to the Moore case that the Supreme Court granted cert on, you know, here in June. And, you know, that's the case we're looking at. You know, give all the citations back to it. Probably mention the case, mention this case number at the Supreme Court and probably reference the fact that it's an appeal of a the Ninth Circuit case and give its citation as to what we're doing and probably even cite back to the district court case. You know, it's following up an appeal of a case that went through this history. So that's what we're doing. You know, talk about the nature of the claim. You know, based on the more, you know, we, we are filing this claim on the chance that the 965 transition tax is found to be invalid. 
due to constitutional flaws. And so because of that, we're looking to get the amounts paid within two years of the date we file the claim, along with any other amounts we may pay later uh, before the uh, contingency is resolved and the claim is processed. So we're looking at that background. And we're going to say about the years for which our refund is sought. And right now we would mention the 2022 and 23. You might as well mention the ones already paid because, you know, they're already out there. And that gets rid of the problem of coming up a year from now, needing to amend the claim to add the 23 payment. Because, you know, it, in, you know, it, it'll be coming up for, you know, it, it's going to go away, should we say, actually, I guess in two years. It'll be coming up and it'll go away. You know, so we'll be doing that. So I guess, yeah, it would be in that range. So like I say, so we don't need to amend two years from now to add 23 as we get toward April of 25. You just want to mention the 23 one now because we know we paid it. We know it's got to be part of the claim. There's no reason to leave it off. I mean, you could leave it off and then file a separate claim later for it. But first thing is, it's just going to complicate matters having two separate claims. And secondly, you're doing one anyway. Add it to the list. That'll be the simplest now. Now, we can't add the 24 payment uh, because the problem is by the time we make that payment, there's a very, very good chance we're already past the date to do the 22. So I would probably get this claim filed well before the 24 payment. So it's very clear we protected 22. And then the 24 payment now, you know, we're probably going to need to amend our claim as we make those payments probably or shortly thereafter. Obviously, there's not as much of a rush, but probably it makes sense to just tag them on as we go. Uh, perhaps even as the client makes the payment, you just then you know let the payment go through and then turn around and file your claim for refund on it, citing this and again asking it to be held pending the resolution of the Moore case will be part of it. Now, some other issues, like I said, updates for later payments, definitely an issue. Uh, I think you want to update them, even if you're not trying to keep the statute open for them, because we expect it to be decided before the statute arises. Uh, but bottom line is just get them on the list. So if we do, you know, if the Moors prevail, then we should be able to, um, you know, with, with the Moors prevailing, we should be able to get paid on all three payments rather than having two of them come in and us need to file a new claim for the third one. Uh, and then do the unique dates, or I'll get that out right, of the fact that this is a weird installment payment routine that was attached by the statute to an income tax return in 2017. I would also say we may see the IRS issue special guidance on how to file these. So I don't know that I rush out right today unless I truly had a statute that was closing. And that would probably only be for a fiscal year C Corp could have that issue where they have a payment, uh, you know, that's going to be coming due soon. And, you know, let's say July 15th. So you need to get your protective claim in for the two years ago here very, very quickly. Then, yeah, you just have to file it. And if they do later guidance, you'll just need to do whatever they say, you know, if a claim's already been filed. But otherwise, uh, you know, go ahead and get your claims together and probably wait a little bit. And maybe if by the end of the year we haven't seen any guidance on doing a, you know, a special way of doing these claims uh, and we don't have any notice from the IRS that that guidance is coming out, we go ahead and file them. Or at the very least, we go ahead and file them, you know, go back and confirm the exact date, probably get the transcript to be a smart thing, to get the exact date that the payment was made in 22 
and just be very, very sure that this claim for refund arrives on the IRS's desk prior to the date, you know, that that payment was received by the IRS or was received, mailed, whatever happened, look in your files, look in the IRS transcript, uh, try to have lots of information to make sure we're ahead of whatever date we might, the IRS might try to argue is the proper measuring date for the date that tax was paid. And I think we should be in better shape at that point. Now, you probably want to at least mention to the client, because this is something that, because of the unique nature of that six-year statute, you want to mention just because if, you, if an exam comes up on the 965 tax computation, um, the client is going to probably believe that filing this amended return triggered it. I don't think that's at all likely, but assuming that it's, there's at least a, a, you know, it's not totally out of the question. The IRS might decide to examine some of these that filed a claim for refund. If the IRS, let's say, if they win the case, obviously if they lose some more cases, it's irrelevant. But if they win the case, they could you know, examine some of these uh, you know, that you might draw attention to yourself in that case. So, you know, explain to them, you know, that that's it. You got to decide if you don't file it until we find out for sure. Well, two advantages, I guess, to that. Number one, you don't add this risk, which I don't think is very high, but you don't add this risk. And then number two, you know, you don't pay for amended returns and, you know, these claims for refund and these things that will cost money. Uh, the downside is if the Boers win, well, you probably threw away one year, if not two or three years of installment payments you're never going to get back because you're outside the statute. So client, your choice, tell me what we're doing. That'll be the background. Now, practical question somebody's going to ask me is, will the Supreme Court overturn this tax? I always tell people I'm never sure what the Supreme Court's going to do on any case. And I think that's going to be very true here as well. I just don't know what they're going to do. However, a lot of observers now are thinking that they're primarily concerned with getting rid of that statement that realization is not required. Not so much looking at overturning this, which if you actually did it the way that the taxpayer is suggesting and rent down the path they're talking about, the problem quickly becomes that a whole lot of things have people taxed on amounts before the return is filed. And that would include, or before there's, before money comes to them. That would include things like, you know, partnerships, S corporations. Now the, now the Moors actually try to, realizing this is going to be an objection in a way that, you know, the courts are going to worry about, because they worry about things like this. The Moors do come back and say, well, an S corporation, you volunteered to be an S, you know. And, but a partnership, you don't really volunteer to be a partnership per se. You had two owners and you didn't incorporate. And if you're going to tell me that, you know, our choice not to incorporate uh, somehow changes things. Well, you know, it was your choice to incorporate, you know, that offshore entity. So, yeah, I, I, I don't see how it's going to be. I think otherwise it's going to be a major, you know, restatement of how we do things. And, you know, and in theory, there'd be concern that the only way Congress could ad adapt to that is, you know, S corporations to be illegal. Um, you know, so everything would go to being a C corp and yeah, that's probably not what we'd like. So again, will Congress, if, if they do find a 965 tax went beyond what it should, they're going to have to do that in a narrow opinion is what I would expect. And I expect they're just going to find it easier not to do that. To either come up with, to come up with a definition of realization 
where the 965 tax counts because the income was realized, even if not received, you know, and point out, and they could make a statement, realization does not equal receiving cash of the income. You could realize it many ways. And I'm sure one of the arguments would be, well, you know, the code, you know, we specifically have talked about sales or exchanges of items, um, you know, and so we, we, we feel that that's a realization event. You've gotten something, you've proven the worth of something, uh, and no, nothing in the 16th Amendment says it's got to be cash. You know, nothing there said cash was required. So conceptually, yeah, they, they may come up with some method, you know, or and they may just, you know, leave that open and, you know, find a way if they want to. And I think what you're going to find out is don't be surprised if we have a decision that upholds a 965 tax, but some concurring opinions that, propose a definition of realization that might serve to eliminate the wealth tax. But again, if they're just concurring opinions for which there's no majority, then we're back into, yeah, you know, I would not surprise the majority opinion says we don't need to decide today, you know, all of these issues. We just know that it's realized because the corporation has picked up this income and say, and with that, you know, and, and any talk about these other things that, we're talking about here is irrelevant and a couple of the other justices may decide well it's not irrelevant we should need a definition of realization which they proposed but i think that's probably the more likely way it'll come out right this will be the issue um, and like i say i really think we're going to see the sustain the tax is the most likely but overturn a position that realization is not required to subject someone to subject income to tax and again if that happens then these protective claims will go to zero so I would certainly tell my client that there's a reasonable chance. In fact, I might even say a probability that we're not getting anything from this, but your odds on getting money for this are way better than your odds on getting money. If you put, go play the slots, you know, if you're playing the slots, you want to go put all your money on or one number on the roulette wheel. You got way better odds of winning here than on that roulette wheel. So, you know, and the cost is not going to be anywhere near putting all of your money on the roulette wheel. So, like I said, it seems like something that it makes sense to file the claim. Um, there's a reasonable chance, you know, the probability is it's not going to work. But if it does work, it could pay off pretty handsomely. So, but it's a client's choice, what they want to do. Next, we're going to go up and talk about draft partnership returns. Draft 1065, Schedules K-1, and Scheduled K-3. These have been issued throughout the month of June by the IRS, right? Uh, each have certain changes that were made. We don't yet have draft instructions. Now, that's not a minor detail because draft instructions are where the last couple of years we have found some of the more significant changes. And some of those instructions will also explain what we're supposed to do with this. In fact, you'll see quite a few of these things refer to C instructions. And so we're probably going to have to attach different additional information, do other things, flag other things differently. So those instructions will be key and we haven't seen them yet. The IRS did announce earlier this year that some changes were coming related to debts allocated to each partner shown on the K-1. They did do something with that here. It's not the something that uh, most of us thought they were going to do. Uh, but, you know, based on what they'd said at the ABA uh, tax section meeting earlier this year. But, you know, we'll talk about what they did. So. Our 1065 changes mainly change questions on Schedule B. That's where we have all those questions about the, 10, about the partnership. They're going to make some significant changes in 
the information requested if there is a 754 election or otherwise there is a 734B or a 743B adjustment. And the reason I say for other reasons, because if you have a large built-in loss, then you have to make those adjustments even if there's no 754 election made. And they're gonna ask for actual numbers now to go directly on the 1065. That will tell them the total adjustment you made for the year, both on positives, net positive adjustments, net negative adjustments that were made to the various uh, partners. Based on that, it's going to ask about your uh, repurchase of foreign stocks, new tax liability on Form 7208. So that'll have a discussion there. And it adds digital asset questions identical to the one that you find on the Form 1040. Okay, what are these questions for 734B and 743B? Well, last year on the 2022 return, we were just asked, do we have an election? And then the next question, oh, do we have previously made a 74 election? Then we're asked is, did we make for this year a basis adjustment under 734B, 743B or 734B? And if yes, attach a statement during the computation allocations. Okay, see instructions. And then they ask, are you required to adjust the basis under 743B or 743B or 734B because of a substantial built-in loss? Right, and if yes, attach a statement during the computation. So last year, it was just basically a three yes, no questions and no numbers reported on the return. Rather, they were put on a random attachment to the return. Now, what's really changing this year is the IRS just takes what were those three questions, now makes four questions to make a separate question for 743B and 734B if there's a 74 election in place. And then ask for the actual amount of the adjustments. And they ask for both the aggregate net positive account amount and the total aggregate net negative amount of those adjustments. And they're asking you to go see the instructions. Given the way that's worded, my guess is there's a definition for each one. So you're going to need to go see, I mean, do, do they mean uh, net positive amount? Are there supposed to be just one of those two numbers filled in? Or are we supposed to fill in them separately? Is it based upon the various K1s? So you add up for each one, do they have a negative or positive? And then, you know, we're going to need some guidance on how to do that. But they're actually asking for actual numbers here this year on here, which probably has meant it's going to be uh, something that will affect the return, right? They're also going to ask you for your effective date of your 74 election. That'll also be disclosed on the form. We still retain the, uh, basically the single question about substantial built-in loss adjustments, but they are going to ask you to disclose the amount. Again, for this point, unlike what was true from the 2022 return. We also have two new questions. Last year, there was a question 29 that said reserved. This year, we're going to take what was question 29. We're actually going to put two questions in. Well, uh, two numbered questions and actually three questions in total that asks about different things. Question 29 is asking about Form 7208 related to the excise tax on repurchase of corporate stock. And it talks about, you know, under the applicable foreign corporation rules, did you have required to file that under those rules? Yes or no? Or under the covered surrogate foreign corporation rules? And if the answer is yes or no for A or B, then you complete Form 7208 and you see the instructions, etc. The question, the second question was added, which is now question 30, pushing old question 30 to question 31, is simply the question we've had before on digital assets from the 1040. Identical. 
At any time during the year, did the partnership A, receive as a reward, award, or payment for property or services, or B, sell, exchange, or otherwise dispose of a digital asset or a financial interest in digital asset? See instructions, yes, no answer. So this question we're very used to. It's just now it's going to be on the 1065. That suggests we're probably going to see it on every return of any entity type is probably ultimately how we're going to see this come down. So expect to have to answer the digital asset question for every type of return you're filing. That's going to be the likelihood. Now, like we said, they're also going to ask on the draft schedule K1, was there a decrease, a decrease in percentages of capital income or loss at the end of the year due to a sale or exchange? We're going to make a change to that question and we're going to have to detail, was it due to a sale? Was it due to exchange? There'll be check boxes for debts from lower tier partnerships and a checkbox for a debts that are considered to be, um, let's see, we're going to get into the second category here, uh, guarantees and the like, right category there. So if we take a look at the 2023 questions on sale or exchange of the interest due to partners' capital changing, last year the question was simply, you know, was a decrease due to a sale or exchange, single check box, this year, two checkboxes. Was it if the decrease is due to a sale checkbox or exchange? Second checkbox. So you have to say if this was a sale partnership interest or an exchange of partnership interest. And the instructions will explain the differences in the two and how you report them. It could get interesting if you had both a partial sale, partial exchange. Well, that could be real interesting. Um, partner share of liabilities. Again, we're going to add the two checkboxes. One that says the K1 includes liability amounts from lower tier partnerships. Um, you know, and secondly, uh, check if any above liabilities are subject to guarantees or other payments obligations by the partner and see instructions. The implication we had from the ABA tax section meeting was that we're actually going to give numbers for those. It looks like as it stands right now, not on the pay face of the K-1, we're not, may very well have to via statements to see instructions, but we're going to at least have to disclose the fact those things are there. Finally, we have some changes to K2, K3. We'll look at the K3 versions, but the K2 versions pretty much the same, right? You remove part one, box seven, form 8858, information attached box. So that's, that's not there anymore. In part two, section two, removes gray for boxes for allocating interest to foreign source income. If you remember, part two is part of the foreign tax credit computation. You got how much of your net taxable income is related to foreign income, which limits our foreign tax credit. If we don't qualify for the exception because we had less than 300 or 600, all came from dividends, etc. So if we don't qualify for that exception, we got to compute the limit. We need to know how much interest to assign to U.S. and non-U.S. income. And previously, you know, because interest requires normally weird allocations, they didn't allow you to list it under any of the categories of foreign income that interest related to but rather simply put it in the box that the partner would need to do the allocation. Now, the problem is there are some special rules under which if you meet certain requirements, all of the interest may be allocated to whatever activity was going on the partnership. So in theory, you know, you might have needed, and I'm sure people point this out, we may have needed to be able to fill in those boxes. And in this case, because the partner qualified for the safe harbor, we don't have that problem. Well, we're going to get rid of those gray boxes this year, so we could do that. I still think the majority of any interest is going to end up going to the boxes that say the partner's got to compute this, but 
that's separate. We also added questions to part 13, foreign partner distributor share of deem sale items on transfer price interest. Remember that was added by the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, where we have deem sale with those effectively connected income items. Uh, this is gonna give us some more information on that for reporting purposes. Final case for this week, this is our one case, actually Montez versus Commissioner. U.S. Tax Court Bench Opinion, docket number 17332-21. The opinion came down on June the 29th. Now, this is another case dealing with the taxation of legal settlements. Under the general rule under the tax law, Code Section 61A, these are going to be taxable. Right? 61A taxes gross income from whatever source received. Gross income is roughly been translated by the courts to be an accession to wealth, uh, like getting cash. Now, not all times, but what it says is if you have that accession to wealth, it's going to be considered gross income unless there is a specific exception written into the code or some other, you know, the code has provided some other methods. Now, some of the exceptions include, you know, the exception for gifts, right? If you receive a gift, that's not considered part of gross income. In most cases, life insurance proceeds are not part of gross income unless it was a transfer for value. So we take those out. We might exclude some cancellation of debt if you're insolvent under 108. That's an exclusion, even though it's income. And today, though, for lawsuits, the main ways we could exclude is either it's a return of capital, which is just considered a reimbursement of an expense. There is no net accession to wealth, the argument goes, because we're just making you whole after somebody damaged you or whatever. So that would be excluded or... There is an exclusion under section 104A2 for personal physical injuries or personal physical illness. If you receive damages payments for those because some party caused you a personal physical injury or they caused you personal, they caused you to get ill, right? Either one of those. So, you know, you go to the restaurant, you're, you're given, you get food poisoning from eating their food because it turns out that, you know, they were the ones of those that failed your county health report. And, you know, you discover a week later they were closed down and you, you just were the victim of that, you know, so you file suit, you get some damage payments made for you, and those payments would be excludable even if they go above and beyond the amounts needed to just reimburse you for medical care and other items. Those generally will be considered to be uh, non-taxable. They're, they're just considered damages to compensate you for that lousy feeling that you had because they caused all those problems. Now, in this case, the taxpayer is going to be looking at a lawsuit award is a woman who achieved her goal to become a firefighter in the city of San Francisco. So this is the background of this case. Now, good news, she got her childhood dream. She'd become a firefighter. Bad news. Turns out firefighting is still mainly a male occupation. Firefighting involves having to be in the firehouse with your other members of your team, you know, for long periods of time. And it turns out that these many of these men were not terribly happy with having a woman firefighter. So she got subjected to rather extreme levels of harassment on the job. They actually sabotaged her equipment, which you may guess for a firefighter, that's not a minor thing to do, right? So sabotaged her equipment. Uh, and normally it appears it was mainly made to have her equipment fouled up. So it would appear that she was just simply not competent. Right. You know, she was always behind, wasn't there right away, etc. 
because she had to go undo all the stuff they did to her equipment before she could respond, which actually puts all the public at risk. That was, you know, okay, apparently we didn't worry about that. Um, and then number two, doing, and I love how the court worded this, doing disgusting and extremely unsanitary things to her personal property. I'll leave that up to your imagination as to what that was, but clearly the court felt the descriptions beyond that point were uh, unnecessary in this case. So we'll just leave it at that. Okay. Not surprisingly, she filed complaints with her superiors and then eventually filed suit against the city. Eventually, the city settled the complaint because it really wasn't something you do not want to take this to court, you know, because in court they will describe the unsanitary and disgusting things that were done to her personal property that everybody claimed they had nothing to do with. It's like, yeah, that just magically appeared. So, okay. And the sabotaging of equipment, etc., like that, that just, it's, it's not going to play well in front of a jury. I just don't care how you look at it. It's going to look very, very bad. So, yeah, at this point, that, that's when your attorney for the city tells them whatever she's asking, pay it. Because if we go to trial, it will be way worse. So they agreed to pay her. One of the things they agreed was to give her a settlement, a payment of $382,797.70. Very exact number. I'm sure there was some math way they agreed to do it. Probably a compromise number, but in any event, that, that's, her, that's her damages. Okay. Now, they agreed that the payment she received would be considered and treated as general damages for personal injury, including allegation of emotional injury. This amount will not be considered or treated as back wages. And that's important because back wages are clearly income. You're replacing income. That income would have been taxable. So that would make it, without question, taxable income. So we got rid of that because that'd be the question if that was for back wages. And the allegations were not being made, apparently, that she had wages. You know, she hadn't been paid or she was quest over promotions. We don't know what all the re reasons were, but they, 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 did, they did agree in the end that these, none of these were payments for, you know, back wages or underpaid wages of that sort. And it also said it was inclusive of all of her general damages that she had claimed. So this is it. And that's a pretty traditional clause to go in a settlement. You know, we don't want to settle, we don't want to settle the suit if we're the defendant and then end up right back in court a week later because the plaintiff sues again. You know, the plaintiff just comes in and argues more damages related to effectively the same event. So we don't want that to happen. So we usually have that all of their damages aren't done in this background. Okay. Now, the court also noted that her original complaint had no alloca no allocations of her, or allegations, I should say not allocate, allegations of physical injury, right? Now, Section 104A2 only applies to payments for physical injury or physical illness. The law also directly states that emotional distress shall not be treated as a physical injury or as a physical sickness. So that blocks it off. Now, the judge actually indicated that he basically disagreed with this conclusion of the law based upon developments in, in psychiatry and medicine in general. But as he said, we have to live with the law. You know, Congress said that's what we're doing. It's their labels, their term, not general science. So bottom line, everything she got had to be included in income, right? Because nothing in the damage award settlement she signed said there was a payment made to her for any physical injury or any physical sickness. It said emotional injuries. And, you know, the law said emotional distress is not one of the things you can exclude. So bottom line said, well, she had to include the whole balance in income. 
But what about penalties? Okay, here she get, here she says, IRS, no, you don't get penalties on this. When she got the, the award, she actually went to and sought advice from a CPA, and that CPA advised her the payments were not taxable. Now, to be honest, the CPA was clearly wrong. To me, this case wasn't even close. I knew as soon as I started reading it, it's like, she's going to pay tax on this. It's just like, there's you know, she's not going to win this case because... You know, I, I've yet to see something excludable when I read her case. And that was basically the conclusion the judge came to. We saw nothing excludable. So I'm not sure how the CPA decided. Probably the CPA got too focused on the fact that, well, that this wasn't for wages. So therefore, it must be for something excludable, right? Because it's not a payment of wages. Again, don't know the logic of the CPA. Don't particularly care at this point. Because honestly, the client's not really so responsible for that logic unless... She has reason to believe that logic is wrong, right? And certainly his promise is not too good to be true because, again, an emotion, you, know, you have emotional distress, um, you, know, you, you know, you have that depression, et cetera, that comes from that. Uh, you know, it, it, it's not obvious why that payments for that are not excludable, but payments for, you know, if you broke your leg would be excludable, you know, for pain there. So, you know, it's not, I don't think it's obvious to a lay person why there'd be a different result. So the court said she had acted reasonably. When she got it, she didn't know what to do with this from a tax standpoint. So she went and got advice from somebody who appeared to be competent to give that advice. Now, the fact the advice she was given was wrong. And I, like I said, I fully believe when I started reading the case that, nope, nope, sorry, you know, this is not going to be excludable. The fact that we knew that, you know, didn't really matter. It didn't really matter that, in fact, the advice was wrong, maybe, you know, significantly wrong. It could matter if the IRS wanted to move against the CPA for a preparer penalty. It may cause the CPA trouble if she now is upset and she files a complaint with the state board, you know, for inadequate, deficient work. I'm hoping she's, you know, not of that type, but always a possibility it could cause a problem for that cpa but it's not going to cause a problem for her there was no penalty to be applied to the underpayment and you know now could she sue the cpa almost certainly not why the problem we would have in this case in a lawsuit against the cpa for malpractice is she's literally no worse off than she would have been had the CPA done this, except for the legal fees, which we already know from the case that the city covered her legal fees. So as a practical matter, the city compensated her for the damages related to this. From a tax standpoint, she's now just paying the tax she would have owed anyway. Yes, she's paying some interest and sometimes courts get confused and might award that. Uh, you know, the CPA has to cover the interest, but that would probably be the worst of the structure would be covering the interest, not actually having to be damaged. Because again, she paid no extra tax. And with no extra tax, it would not appear there's any malpractice in play that would be there. But a complaint to the state board for inadequately performing your job, that is a little more. Again, the board might come to the same conclusion. There was no damage here. You know, so why are we going to penalize the CPA for no damage? A lot would depend on the CPA being able to show, you know, how the CPA came to that conclusion. It's okay to make a mistake right? Um, as long as, you know, the procedures appear to be such that normally it wouldn't be made. We're all going to make the wrong call at some point. 
So merely making a mistake is not in of itself malpractice. Uh, but what is if you are if you were operating in a way that was negligent, and that pretty obviously would lead to problems like this if you just thought about it for a second. This has been the current federal tax developments for the week of April the or you should say not April man don't go back in time July the third twenty twenty three. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and your state Society of CPAs. Uh, join us here next week when we'll talk about whatever comes up in the following week on taxes. In the interim. I do monitor the discussion boards for the Arizona Society of CPAs Connect site, New Jersey Society's Connect site, the Connect site for Illinois, Connect site for Washington and Minnesota, as well as the general discussion board for the Idaho Society of CPAs. So if you're a member of one of those, you can post there. Otherwise, we look forward to uh, talking to you next week. We'll see what else comes up in the area of current federal tax developments.